Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 68. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. I've got a great topic for today, but before I get into that, I'd like to remind you to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page, do all of those things. That's the only way I'm going to help, or you're going to help, I should say, get the message out there and spread this podcast around if you like it. Share it with your friends on social media. Also, if you'd like to get some free stuff from me, please go to my homepage, brianmcclanahan.com, and sign up for my email list. You get a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and you get a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. So it's great goodies, great stuff. Uh, also, if you do like this material and you want more of me in an educational format, you can go to learntruehistory.com. And if you sign up at the uh, Basic Plus membership level or the Master membership level, you get a free signed copy of Forgotten Conservatives in American History. Uh, just let me know you signed up. And that is for new subscribers. So uh, if you're an, an old subscriber, I'll have some stuff at some point for you. But uh, right now, uh, if you are a new subscriber there, you get that free book. Okay, well, my topic for today is actually driven by a book that was published about 20 years ago uh, by a guy named Lawrence Keeley. He's a professor of anthropology at uh, University of Illinois. And so um, the, the title of the book was War Before Civilization. And so the idea, and I've, I've discussed this topic on this podcast before, but Civilization. Why is civilization important? And I want to I want to use that that book as a bridge to discuss several different philosophical topics. And that's because I think one thing you know, conservatives or libertarians, uh, we need to realize is how important civilization actually is. And I think conservatives and libertarians do realize that. I mean, uh, most of the time, now I would not say neoconservatives, but um, because their view on war is in so many ways destructive. Of civilization, but uh, I think we get into this, you know, almost a utopian vision of what we're doing. You know, we a lot of times we tend to uh, slide toward ideology. You know, this is our ideology. We're very rigid in it. We think this is the ideal society. This is the only way it's going to work. Um, I think that custom and precedent is is more important than that, and not just that tradition. And you find the traditions that worked. Uh, so. When you look at the history of the world and the history of man, there are examples out there to say, well, you know what? This free society does work. Uh, we have examples of that. Uh, these traditional societies in this particular way worked. And so it gets into this idea of Chesterton's fence. You know, why would you, when you, when you buy a piece of land and there's a fence there, you don't just go tearing down the fence. You first ask yourself, why is the fence there? And then if the fence was there for a good reason, well, you'll leave it. But progressives tend to just tear down the fence. They don't really care. If there was a good reason, they don't think it's ever valid. 
Uh, well, that's just a reason. That's, that's just old fuddy-duddy talk there. But this idea of why civilization exists and why it's important, I think Keeley gets to the heart of that in this book. And so it's War Before Civilization, uh, and it's published in 1996 by Oxford University Press. So it was a major uh, academic press. And Keeley took to task many historians and archaeologists who look at the world the way that Jean-Jacques Rousseau looked at the world. And if you don't know how that works, uh, Rousseau believed that before civilization, man sat around the campfire holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Uh, Rousseau said that primitive warfare really only occurred when food was a central issue and the tribe was hungry. Outside of that, uh, if essential needs were met, the natural state of primitive societies was peace. Now, in some ways, uh, I think that particularly as we think about our modern situation, um, most people tend to want peace because it allows us to live our life the way we choose. When you're in a warfare situation, uh, when you're at constant state of war, you are not living your life the way you choose. You're under constant pressure, uh, violent pressure. Uh, you might be, um, typically men were sent off into the army, and so they can't go out there and uh, worry about uh, growing crops and, ra and rearing families and having children and all those kind of things. Uh, women are also under pressure because the men are away. And so war creates discord and unhappiness in communities. Now, most of Rousseau's theories have been discredited since the 1960s by fieldwork. Uh, but Lee, uh, Keeley thinks that, uh, Lawrence Keeley thinks that uh, some of these things still exist. Some people still believe in a communist golden age before civilization. And of course, Rousseau was important leading up to the French Revolution. A lot of the French revolutionaries believed, that, believed this, that you know, humanity was naturally peaceful and that it was only through civilization that people became more violent. Uh, now, one of my favorite shows I've talked about on the podcast is The Walking Dead, and actually there was a character in that show that said that. Man is not inclined to violence. Man is inclined to peace. And so the natural state of man is peace. Uh, I disagree with that because I think history has shown that man is actually naturally inclined to violence against other men against other people, and it's only civilization that has made man good. And so that is more of a Hobbesian position. Now, Keeley would argue there's a little bit, uh, there's, there's a middle ground here. But Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, uh, said that the past was solitary, quote, solitary, poor, wasting, and brutish. And the only thing that saved man was Western civilization. Uh, primitive societies, Hobbes argues, uh, were awful. But oftentimes, historians believe that even though these primitive societies were awful, it's only civilization that saved them, they didn't think that these primitive societies could really organize for warfare because uh, the nation states and the civilization needed to do so did not exist. And of course, historians said, well, there was still, you know, primitive warfare. Uh, but most historians think it was just simply barbaric, unorganized, and unsophisticated. But Keeley says, no, 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 there, this is not true. The truth might be the medium between the two concepts. 
Keeley says this, primitive tribes were in fact brutal, but Keeley says primitive life was not solitary, poor, wasting, and brutish. He said that primitive society was more accurately described as complex and brutal. So he's taking to task Hobbes. He's also taking to task Rousseau because he says Rousseau was just full of bunk and Hobbes was correct. And how did he figure this out? Well, he went out and he looked at the, the archaeological sites and he looked at the tools and he looked at all these things that existed. Um, and he said that contrary to the popular historical interpretation of primitive life, pastoral society often gave way to the cold realities of war. And so he looks at the things that they had uh, and the things that they did, and he concludes, quote, this, Peaceful societies have been very rare, that war was extremely frequent in non-state societies, and that tribal societies often mobilized for combat at a very high percentage of their total manpower. Now, what does this mean for us? Nothing yet, because we live in a state of civilization. But I think as you look at the decline of civilization or the fragmentation of civilization, we should be very concerned about that because civilization has allowed this peaceful environment in which we live, the ability for me to do this podcast and criticize the government or criticize uh, this person or another person. Uh, That is the result of a peaceful society. The fact that you listen to this podcast is the result of a peaceful society. Economic prosperity is the result of a peaceful society. So these are things we should be very concerned about and, of course, actively pursuing. Keeley also goes on to say uh, that, um, from the historical record, peaceful societies rarely existed. He demonstrated that only 10 to 13% of the study societies rarely or never engage in warfare. 10 to 13%. And even when he digs further into those societies, he realized that peaceful societies often had a very high homicide rate, as much as four times higher than that of the modern United States. So he says, you know, to characterize these groups as pacifists is to undermine the effect of violence on their respective communities. And he said these societies engaged in warfare almost all the time. He said 70 to 90% of pre-state societies engage in war at least once every five years, with most facing war every two years. And so when you compare that to modern history, he said even at the height of European power in the 19th century, only Great Britain came close to matching those numbers. Maybe you could suggest the United States as well in the modern age. So he says, Keeley concludes that the less complex and more primitive the society, the more likely the society was to engage in prolonged and frequent warfare. Uh, So when historians went back and looked at these peaceful societies, um, they often viewed mobilization as a problem. They didn't have resources, they didn't have transportation, they didn't have modern technologies. uh, And so... Uh, you had less sustainable campaigns, and therefore fewer men were engaged in combat. But Keeley says this is false. Uh, they actually were able to mobilize quite easily. And at times, 30 to 40% of the 
male warrior population face combat on a regular basis. He also suggests that uh, prehistoric warfare began about 30,000 years ago. 30,000 years ago. And as he looked at human remains from uh, burial sites, uh, he found embedded stone arrowheads and axe wounds to be common. Uh, He found that many of these societies constructed fortifications for war, uh, protection against warring tribes or bands. Um, But he also uh, said that uh, because of homicide and violent death 10 to 20,000 years prior to the agricultural revolution, uh, he says that um, one must question a lack of warfare in the prehistoric world. And he said, quote, If anything, peace was a scarcer commodity for members of bands, tribes, and chiefdoms than for the average citizen of a civilized state. And he said this warfare was very effective. Uh, and basically what we're looking at is uh, modern guerrilla warfare. Um, and these men were typically armed with axes or knives, um, and even though these could be used for other things, um, many of them lacked the rigidity needed for felling trees or chopping wood. So the only thing they could have been used for was killing people. Um, so Keeley is really going after this idea that uh, these people were just a bunch of communists who liked to be around each other and didn't kill each other. In fact, I remember there was an article not long ago where people have found what they think is the first evidence of homicide in the Paleolithic period. They found a skeleton down a well, and he was obviously pushed down there. So, <laughs> um, because of some of the some of the trauma to the to the skeleton, so uh, humans have been destructive for a long period of time. Um, and he also says this warfare produced uh, higher casualty rates and more brutal engagements. Um, now, why do these people go to war? Uh, Keeley says uh, that modern assumptions um, are that generally women uh, were considered essential to warfare in primitive society. And he says, while this may be true, I mean, uh, trying to acquire women, there are also similarities in terms of causation between modern and primitive societies. Things like population density, trade, intermarriage, aggressive neighbors, fluctuating frontiers, famine and starvation, all of these things contributed to primitive warfare. So he says that even though modern warfare and primitive warfare are different in terms of technology, tactics, mobilization, and strategy, there are far more similarities than differences between primitive and modern warfare. And he suggests that it takes more civilization, not less, to reduce the frequency, brutality, and harshness of war. So this should be something that we're looking at in the modern age. We need more civilization to prevent war. And one of the main uh, things I think we can get out of this, and the, uh, you know, Ron Paul has been a, a, pro- a proponent of this for a long time, but that trade actually produces peaceful trade, actually produces more civilization, healthier communities, and less warfare. So peaceful trade. Now, how can we say that? Well, when you look at the history of various peoples, and then even the history of the United States. For example, Rome. During the Pax Romana, which was a little over 200 years, the, the Roman peace, often called the immense majesty of the Roman peace, which began during the age, essentially, of uh, Augustus, 
what you find in that period of time is that one of the reasons why Roman, uh, you know, Roman communities, these one-time independent communities, were willing to give up their independence was because Rome offered peace. As long as you were not on the frontier, the border of Rome, you didn't face a whole lot of warfare. You were secure in Rome. You were secure in the long-established areas of Rome from any type of outside interference. Piracy was suppressed. Uh, the, the brigands on the roads, uh, these thieves were suppressed. Uh, you had a large co-prosperity economic sphere. You could get anything you wanted from the farthest reaches of, of Asia, Europe. If you were living in an area that didn't have silk, for example, you could now have it because of the Roman Empire. They were wealthy. And so this money, this trade, fostered an environment where peace was so important. Prosperity creates peace. And the only way to have that is not through government action. It's not to say we're going to go out and we're going to uh, ensure that everyone has the same income. No. It's through economic activity and upward mobility. And they had that in Rome. When all of that started to fall apart is when you started getting what we would call today crony capitalism. And the government started siding with the larger and larger landholders uh, to create an environment where they could invest in the government themselves and make more money on government contracts. So when you started getting this corporate welfare or crony capitalism in Rome, you started to see the breakdown of this very affluent society. Now, also in Rome, uh, when you look at the old Roman citizen, you had traits that made them great. And uh, it was this old, these old Republican virtues that the founding generation in America often talked about. You had to be a virtuous citizenry to enjoy this type of peace. And when that started breaking down and you started to have corruption and all these other things, that's also when Rome failed. But during this immense majesty of the Roman peace, it was trade. It was a co-prosperity sphere that made all of that possible. Another ancient civilization that had this were the Phoenicians. Not a group that's often talked about, but when you look at, for example, the Minoan civilization in Crete, and you look at how affluent these people were, uh, and they were probably, or, you know, and then later the Phoenicians. All of these people were engaged in trade, and they were very wealthy. Now, it didn't mean they didn't have violence in their society. If you look at Minoan civilization, for example, uh, they loved violent sports, you know, bull leaping and boxing and all of these things. But they were also interested in the arts. Uh, they were also very wealthy. In some cases, you might say they were hedonistic, but... They had a beautiful civilization. Same thing with the Phoenicians, who spread all throughout the Mediterranean, and they made a lot of money. And the Phoenicians only disappeared when they were attacked. Uh, now, you might say that you know the Phoenicians. Um, you know, if you look, if you go forward into Roman history, the Phoenicians were involved in the Punic Wars with the Romans. But the Romans kind of started that. Uh, the Romans wanted to acquire islands off of Italy, and then they wanted to acquire Spain, and the Phoenicians simply were defending their possessions. Uh, and they almost brought the Romans to their knees. You know, Hannibal, the great general uh, who led the Punic forces against the Romans, almost defeated the Romans in the Punic War. So, but the Phoenicians were a peaceful trading community, and they had a high, civil, high level of civilization, very wealthy, beautiful art, uh, so it didn't mean that warfare doesn't exist in civilizations. There's not homicide. But the more and more people are civilized, the less you see of these things. 
One of the reasons why we're so shocked by brutal murders, murders today and high homicide, you know, uh, nasty homicide, is because it is the exception rather than the rule in America. It wasn't always that way. America was a much more violent place at one point when you had less civilization. One thing we should always be doing is telling people, look, if you're not civilized, you're a barbarian. You're brutish. Uh, we, we glorify lack of civilization today, and that's a major problem. Some of the culture we glorify in America is not civilized. We should be advocating civilization. We should be calling people out for not being civilized. Act civilized. Uh, when you're not, people should say, you know, we're not going to associate with you. You will be ostracized from our community because you're acting like a barbarian. And the Greek word barbarian meant, you know, you were smelly and stupid. And I see a lot of those people running around. But when you look at the United States and bring this forward and, you know, how we can, how can we can apply this to the United States? The United States Constitution, one of the great benefits of it and why it was so actively pursued for many people was that it created one large co-prosperity sphere in the United States. This is how, you know, people like uh, Roger Sherman sold it uh, or John Rutledge. Look, we're going to have a great union and we're going to have a situation where everyone can make money. And when you can make money, you have less violence. Because people want to, I mean, look, peace produces larger populations, uh, produces a climate where people are happy. And so trade, this co-prosperity sphere in, uh, in the United States, creates a climate where that can happen. And what they wanted was lack of economic regulation. They wanted people just to be able to make it, just to be able to make as much money or to be as happy and, and prosperous as they wanted in whatever uh, you know, economic endeavor they wanted to pursue, whether it was agricultural or commercial or industrial. That was the beauty of the United States. And then, of course, when you extend that out to foreign policy, our foreign policy for much of American history was a peaceful trading partner with the world, not going out and being aggressive and trying to acquire as much territory as we can get or get involved in wars with every other country in the, on the globe. No. Our policy was, we're going to trade with you, and we're going to be a peaceful trading partner. We're going to be neutral. Now, some of that was born out of necessity. The United States didn't have the ability to go out and seek war with every other, uh, every other entity in the world. But I think a lot of that was also not just practical. It was, it was born out of this realization that war is a disaster for a people. It creates a very dangerous environment. People can't be prosperous during war unless they're getting government contracts and these other things. I know some people say, well, war makes me money. Yeah, if you're a crony capitalist or if you're into corporate welfare, certainly you can make a lot of money. If you get government contracts, there have been lots of people in American history who have made money on war. But most people, the majority of people, do not make money on war. The founding generation suffered through a terrible war, the War for American Independence, and people were struggling, and they didn't want that again. And so only when it became necessary did they engage in war uh, in the first 80 years, for the most part, first 80 years of American history. So peace is often fostered by trade, by peaceful interaction with people, and trade is the best way you can do that. I have something you want, you have something I want, we trade it, we shake hands, we're off on our own, and we have our families, we have our societies, we're prosperous, we're engaged in living life the way we want to, 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that meant property. So we don't often realize this, that the key to all of these things really is civilization. That Hobbes was right in many ways, that uh, without civilization, people are more inclined to violence. Now, how does this work when we start talking about things like think locally, act locally? You know, if, if uh, Keeley is right in some ways, then the smaller the societies, the more warfare you're going to have. I don't think that's necessarily correct either, because there have been countless examples that's not true. And I think one of the best examples of that is the current Swiss Confederation, uh, where you have these really autonomous uh, provinces within Switzerland, and they have a central authority, but that central authority is very weak. So it's federalism that creates prosperity and peace there. Uh, and the center can't tell the, the uh, units what to do. So that's how the federal government was originally designed in the United States. These smaller federal entities, or I should say individual smaller republics, uh, were able to decide most questions themselves. It's just that defense and commerce were handled by the center. And the idea was that defense would be really that, defense. We're going to defend our borders from incursions. We're going to defend our borders from hostile entities. And we're going to create an environment where everybody can make money. Everyone can live their life the way they see fit. Again, whether you want to be a farmer, whether you want to get out there and trade on the high seas, whether you want to have a factory or something, of the, you're going to be able to do that because we're going to have a co-prosperity sphere here in America. And so when we talk about think locally, act locally, it doesn't, it doesn't deter that from taking place. In fact, I think you could say, well, it, it, it uh, works well with that. Because these smaller communities then can form their own economic models. Uh, they can uh, uh, have their own legislation that suits the people and their culture best. That creates happiness among people. And then we trade with people and say, you know what, our, you may be different from us, but we're going to trade with you because that mutually benefits everyone. That's peace. So I think one thing we miss is that somehow we believe that larger and larger states create more and more peace. I think that's, complete, that's been com proven completely false in the modern era, really beginning since the French Revolution as you had the creation of these much larger nation-states. Warfare uh, is um, not necessarily uh, less frequent. I think as you get larger states, you do see uh, uh, the increase in warfare in certain ways, particularly between other states, um, though I think Keeley was correct that uh, if civilization is there and present, you're going to have less of it. Uh, the destructive toll, though, of things like World War II, as I think where historians can, can maybe find fault with Keeley's premise in that way. Um, however, more civilization does create more and more peace, uh, and the modern state is not necessarily, the large state is not necessarily conducive to creating a peaceful environment. I think you can have it with a smaller state. It's been proven. You know, Switzerland is the most peaceful country in the history of, of the world. I mean, they haven't been to war in hundreds of years. So I think when you, when you find that, when you find that uh, these smaller states can work, also, but with a recognition that there is some type of central government that has control over certain 
areas, but that they cannot coerce the smaller states, um, like the original U.S. Constitution, I think you find that uh, warfare could be avoided. But the whole key to all of this is trade. It's a recognition that peace and civilization go together. And those are things we should be actively discussing with our friends, with our state, our politicians, because we don't have statesmen anymore, uh, with the people that are in leadership positions. We need to seek peace so we can have prosperity because that creates the greatest happiness for people. And that has been proven all throughout human history, even going back into the furthest reaches of recorded history. Civilization and peace go hand in hand, and trade and peace go hand in hand. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.